Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, a new generation of investors and how to provide them peace of mind. We will also discuss what it means to provide holistic wealth planning and the benefits of outsourcing money management. That's with our guest, Vice President of Model Portfolio Business Development at Fidelity Investments, Susie Daly. Welcome to The Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are you watching for at the moment? We are recording this towards the very end of August, and we've just had the virtual Jackson Hole Federal Reserve meeting. So the markets are sort of processing that. I think the takeaway is the month of August looks like it's going to be another positive month, even though historically August tends to be kind of a quirky, mediocre sort of month. We're going to have a probably a strong month. We're going to head into the last half of the year with a mostly positive outlook. September over the last 20, 50, and 100 years has been the weakest month of the year, but this market has been so strong this year. It's swatted everything else away. So right. bullish outlook remains intact. All right. Well, let's dive straight in. Our guest today is Susie Daly, Vice President of Model Portfolio Business Development at Fidelity Investments. Susie, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So we do have a lot to talk about today, but before we get started, I'm going to hand it over to Rusty to kick us off. Yeah, with our favorite first question. So what we need to do is have our walk-up song. So we need to set that tone for today's interview. So Susie, what is your walk-up song? What can we hear in the background? Oh, that's a bold question right out of the gates. Okay, so no judgment, please. But I, you know, I tend to be hopefully somewhat of an infectious and enthusiastic individual. So I don't do anything but smile and tap my foot when I hear Walking on Sunshine by Katrina in the Waves. Right. All right. Hey, I just got to say, Katrina has Nebraska connections too. No way. Based here in Omaha. Yeah. I think she was an Air Force kid. So there's probably like eight different places that say Katrina's <laughs> from there, but she was in Nebraska. So we, we take her too. Oh, that's great. I think she may have been a one hit wonder, but you know, I like that one hit she made. Oh yeah. That's a fun song. Good choice. Yes. Very good choice. All right. Well, Susie, so you have been with Fidelity Investments for 16 years of have that, right? You've risen through the ranks from development consultant to head of managed accounts and now to vice president of model portfolio business management. So tell us more about your work at Fidelity and your experience there. Great question. So to kind of let you in on a little bit about who I am. Yeah, it's actually, I think, been closer to 18 years. And I would say if I was in an elevator with somebody, I would say that my 18 years has been a blend of managed accounts and technology. And today what I do is I lead the managed account model portfolios and separately managed accounts distribution efforts. But historically, you know, over the last 18 or so years, I've worked with broker dealers, RIAs, multifamily offices, going from kind of selling through managed account capabilities through TAMP platform providers like yourselves. I'd go in and talk to them about optimizing their tech stack, how to make more efficient and effective workflows. And uh, as I sit today, I run a team and we talk about how to distribute our best thinking and leading with thought leadership on outsourcing investment management. But it's been a wonderful ride and a great organization. And uh, to sum it up nicely, it's a great blend of managed accounts and tech. 
Great. Well, I do want to ask you about one thing in your career. So you've excelled in your career and it's one that's really dominated by men. So even though there's several studies out there that show women are better investment managers and advisors, actually, but what has your experience been like as a woman in the investment industry? And how do you think it's changed since you began your career? Ooh, that's a great question. I would give all the credit to my three older brothers because I was raised in a fairly male-dominated environment. And then they taught me to speak up and be aggressive with my points of view. So as you point out, 18 years ago, I think the landscape looked a little bit different than it does today. And I give the industry a tremendous amount of credit for all the forward progress we've made with diversity and inclusion and including female leaders and celebrating female leaders. I've only ever worked at Fidelity Investments, and I'm just really, really encouraged with all the strong forward thinking we have around celebrating female leaders and not just female leaders, all diversity, all underrepresented races and ethnicities. So, but I would say too that everything from when we look to hire new entrants into the marketplace, we have a rigorous process around diversity, inclusion, what our overall candidacy structure needs to look like, what the interviewing panel needs to look like making sure that we represent the full swath of the marketplace. So I will say that we have a very structured and well-educated and evangelized process around celebrating diversity at Fidelity. I'm really proud to be part of that process. But then just to double click into it a little bit locally, I think this is an interesting kind of excerpt in that I was looking two months ago, only recently to hire to my team. And just as an anecdote, 150 applicants applied for the team and there was 10 female applicants that came through the bars. So that was a little bit discouraging. So we as, as corporate leaders can't change the paradigm all on our own. I believe we do need to start back in high schools and back in college and universities and be part of mentorship and leadership programs to get excite individuals about entering into this industry, not just celebrating and motivating them once they've arrived. Right. Okay. You know, actually just on that point, quick aside, it's like the numbers for applications are very similar to that. When we have an open role, I would say it's clearly less than 10% every time particularly on investment-related functions. And it's interesting too, like I'll see what I'm looking for. I'll get the overly qualified females that have every single degree, every single master CFA, CFP, when really the expertise is above and beyond what I'm looking for. So this is just an interesting observation where I'm looking for somebody even less qualified, a little bit more broader breadth than that. I think the reason I mentioned that is I, I do believe that females tend to put themselves as I need to overqualify for the role to even apply for it. And once they apply for it, they say, look at all of the capabilities I have. So I think that's a gender difference that I've identified so far. Yeah. So Fidelity published a fascinating paper recently called Standing Out as an Advisor for Today's Investor. And it details the shifting demographics and generational shifts taking place that are transforming our customer bases. So investors are changing and we need to change with them. So tell us about what you set out to do and find out from this study. Absolutely. And one of the things we're most focused on at Fidelity is helping advisors connect with their clients to best grow their business. So the presentation and paper, Rusty, that you're referencing, it really blends together a bunch of different studies that we've done over the past few years. And I'll name two specifically. So there's a report based on data from panelists who completed the April 2021 outsourcing survey among Fidelity's financial advisor community. And in that study, we had 451 total respondents, 76 were wirehouses, 111 were registered investment advisors, and 264 were broker dealers. And the second source that really fueled this study 
was a 2021 Fidelity Investor Insights study. So Fidelity has actually been in the field twice in the last 12 months throughout the pandemic, most recently between May of 2020 through June of 2021, where we surveyed 1,974 investors, including 773 millionaires. And this study was conducted via a 25-minute online survey associated by an unaffiliated third party. And previous to that, we ran the same exact playbook, but the times ran from October of 19 to October of 2020. So just to get you all comfortable with the data sources, that's how Fidelity has run the surveys. And those surveys were used to fuel and kind of put together the standing out as an advisor for today's investor. Okay, so I have looked at your presentation on this topic, and it is loaded with stuff. That's why we're doing a podcast. <laughs> but in short, what do you think are the key takeaways in this presentation? And like, first and foremost, what do investors really want from their financial advisors? The key takeaways first, I think, is identifying that there is a shift in the investor demographic. And we're trying to get advisors comfortable with who our collective future and current investor is. Then namely, how do we position and shift their book of business to catch those assets and comfortably connect with those clients? And lastly, take that first step in doing so. That's what the presentation is really all about and hopefully we'll hit on today. But some of the key takeaways that I'd say, and to your question, Rusty, around what do investors really want? I think the best way to answer this question is to understand who your investor is first before assessing what they may want or need from you. But I will put up as a general rule of thumb, younger investors are placing greater value on more personalized approaches, focusing on relationships, values, and life goals. So things beyond managing the money. So that's the spoiler alert. You know, I was going to follow up with that question too. One thing I have to say about these generational studies is I have to admit, I get really upset by some of them because for my whole life, there was a very clear line between baby boomers and Gen X. Why are they trying to change the date on that stuff now? <laughs> like I'm a Gen Xer and some of these th new things are trying to make me a baby boomer and I, I, it just doesn't work. You don't self-identify that way. I hear you. No, it just doesn't <laughs> work. So again, so you kind of talked about how some of the goals have shifted, but you know, really, what are some of the key takeaways? How are baby boomers different from Gen Zers? We'll just forget the Gen Xers because everybody forgets about us. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I'll, I'll hit that. So let's draw that line in the sand. And now let's do it between baby boomers, which we identify as born before 1965. And then that line thereafter. So then younger investors will be what we call Gen X, Y, and Z. So that line in the sand. So if you're a baby boomer born before 1965, we talk a lot about, you know, Fidelity's perception of the advice value stack and what that means to us. And on that bottom layer of the advice value stack is something called managing the money. Managing the money is the cornerstone to a lot of advisors and how they run their book of business and is extremely important. It's something you need to do right. It's like food, water, oxygen. So I do believe that baby boomers put a lot of value and faith in the relationship they have with their advisors around this concept of portfolio construction, manager research, due diligence, alpha around managing the money. And so additionally, I'd say some of the behaviors and differences of how baby boomers have interacted with their advisors is that there was much more of a reliance on in-person meetings, trusting that advisor through being there in three-dimensional space, going locally down to that local branch office where you'd meet with their advisors. And then some more of those paper communication trails, whether it's a, a statement or a quarterly performance report or physically thumbing through the performance, because quite often conversations with your advisor were hung on performance and how you're doing versus the S&P. Contrast that with what we're seeing in terms of a lot of our recent studies that I referenced earlier around what our younger investors looking for. These younger investors are really expecting more beyond just managing the money and financial advice from their advisors. 
So to get specific with you here, 69% of investors surveyed in some of these uh, surveys we've referenced earlier were interested in at least one non-financial service. That's versus only 7% of baby boomers. So 69% versus 7%. So that's astronomical. Essentially, that's saying we're looking for more than just managing the money from our advisors. And we'll hit on what those other services may be a little bit later. Another observation is 48% of younger investors would relate to a financial advisor if they had a strong social media presence versus 4% of the baby boomers. And I think a lot of that has to do with the way that Gen X, Gen Y, and Gen Z are digitally native, the way we consume information. Some of our research suggests that we spend over three and a half hours on our smartphones. We drive the subscription economy, Peloton, Netflix, you name it, and how these corporations have survived. We are used to consuming curated content, personalized at scale when we want it. So we're out there looking for a social media presence, for a digital presence, for a digital brand. So I think that kind of shows value in what some of the younger investors are looking for in the financial advisor. And then the last thing I'll say, too, just in terms of the studies, the younger generations interacted more with their advisors, specifically during the pandemic, than the older generations. Specifically, the younger investors were interacting with their advisors seven and a half times during the year versus 5.8 times over the year. And the ways that they were interacting, again, not a surprise, chat, social media, texting. So these are all foreign and, and new ways of interaction. So those are just some tip of the iceberg differentiators in the way that younger investors are looking to kind of stretch their relationship beyond financial advice and looking more into planning goals, self-fulfillment, actualization, career coaching, and beyond. So super interesting stuff. So another point that you noted in the presentation when you're talking about the arrival of Gen Z is the rise of purpose in the embrace yeah. of the S, right? And ESG investing, that's the social impact that investors are taking into consideration as they invest. So do you see ESG and other thematic investment strategies just continuing to grow in popularity? I do. And I'm a profound believer in this and, you know, the buzz and that they're talked about, but nobody's seeing the the flows. And I think there's something to be said about that. I think as we start to untuck who the investor is today, I think there's a direct correlation to who these investors are and what their beliefs are and their sole focus on self-identification with purpose, social governance, environment beliefs. To get more specific, though, I think the interest in ESG investing has surged over the years. The number of conventional funds that consider ESG factors has increased dramatically. But yeah, I would say that advisors haven't seen the flows and they haven't seen the demand from their investors ubiquitously, not as much as we've heard it talked about in the industry. And why do we think that is? My guess, and you know, some of we folks from Fidelity think that it's attributed to the conversation. Advisors don't feel comfortable yet having that personalized value-based conversation. So getting advisors comfortable living in that uncomfortable zone of asking those personalized, brutally empathetic questions about what is important to you, what drives you, what motivates you, how do you self-identify is really, I think, some of the starting blocks of working with your client to understand how they identify with the right ESG product and how that's going to essentially align to their goals, their needs, whether they're investment related or whether they're more altruistic in kind of what their clients are looking for. Fidelity identified something called the ESG mindset, which ultimately helps do just this. It helps advisors understand what motivates their clients. So it's a framework we came up with, and there's four quadrants to this framework. So before going into a client conversation where you think there's going to be an ESG focus, we would jot down four different keywords. Are they an impact seeker? So are they looking to make a measurable difference? Question mark. Are they expressing seeker? So are they looking to make a statement? Are they a security seeker? 
And that just essentially means they're looking to make some money. Or are they an alignment seeker, which means they're looking to be consistent with their overall values unrelated to finances. So those are how we've been successful in coaching advisors to kind of hang out in that uncomfortable zone of getting to know their client and what's important to them to then make the right suitable recommendation for products. Something else that the presentation covers is the change in financial planning mindset. So younger people are looking for more comprehensive services or holistic wealth planning from advisors. What does that mean exactly? Great question. So I don't think it's a secret that Fidelity really is a true believer in financial planning being a, a core foundation to successful advisory practices. And to simplify, you know, the way I see a financial plan is the map of how individuals get from point A to point B. But there couldn't be a more personalized journey. Your point A looks a lot different than my point A, and my point B may look a lot different than your point B. So the beauty of what an advisor has to do is chart that course for the client. So when we asked which services in in the surveys that I mentioned earlier, when we asked which services became more valuable during the early days of the pandemic to all of those that we interviewed, young investors ranked financial planning as number one. So investors with financial plans reported higher confidence, lower stress and health, family and work. And seven out of the 10 advisors believed planning augmented their revenue streams and their clients gave them higher ratings, overall satisfaction. So that's a bit of a context around how we continue to think and double down on the impact of financial planning. And let's face it, I think we can all look and identify that the pandemic has been a life event in and of itself. And that life event is driving money in motion, is driving emotion, and it's driving a real good opportunity for advisors to drive thoughtful plans. You asked a little bit too about the different levels of planning, and we've kind of identified different levels in that there's basic financial planning, which is great. And that's more around kind of cash flow, retirement income distribution, and and the certain blocks and tackling of planning, which is extremely valuable. But we've seen a subset of advisors taking planning to a whole new level. We've talked about this as holistic financial planning. So as you think about holistic financial planning, Fidelity, as I'm sure you can already identify, loves frameworks. So we came up with a a three-legged framework to think about what holistic planning is. Holistic planning to us moves away from this notion of selling products and solutions that align with the overall goal of getting you from A to B that we talked about earlier. And it more brings up this notion of continuous engagement, always discovering. So people's lives are always changing. Life events are always happening. The plan that you deliver today is likely going to be upended and changed by tomorrow type concept. And the other thing I'd mentioned too is that There's been a lot of life that has happened, even notably in the past 18 months, a decade of events has happened in the last 18 months. So there's a lot that has impacted everyone's financial plan. So continuous engagement really just boils down to always discover. The next leg of the stool is comfortable and personable. So making sure that you're understanding your client's life events. They're not always sequential. And so we all grew up with this notion of, you know, you buy a house, you get married, you have babies, you have a job, you change jobs, you maybe, you know. So these are the concepts of which people step through life events. And as you go through life events, maybe you encounter money in motion. What we're seeing is that with the newer generations, these life events are no longer sequential. They're not linear. There could be events that are non-related to one another. You're seeing investors that are encountering intergenerational living and living with elders and taking care of their parents while having babies. These things are happening kind of day in, day out. So just having that comfortable and personal conversation to let you more personalize your plan. 
The last thing is delivering comprehensive services. So going beyond that traditional budgeting, debt management, and portfolio allocations, and thinking about what we call non-traditional services. So stepping out into the unknown of college counseling, career coaching, business consulting, becoming that one-stop shop for clients really allows you to deliver services above and beyond. The last thing I'll say, and I'll turn it back to you, Rusty and Rob, but I promise is that, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's kind of the so what of this, right? So you have these advisors that are going above and beyond with this holistic planning. The end of the study comes up with only one in five advisors are actually doing this level of financial planning. And of these one in five advisors, 47% have reported higher AUM and 67% have provided growth in the number of clients. So it's working. Wow. Well, okay. So the paper suggests that holistic wealth planning is obviously allowing advisors to spend more time providing peace of mind to their clients and basically just spending time on the relationship. And you kind of touch upon the benefit of when it comes back to the advisor in terms of how much growth they could expect, but also in terms of just their time when they outsource like money management, how much time do they save on average? It's a great question. And so I think this will vary and every advisor client relationship is going to be different, but In terms of sharing what our research and our surveys reported out for the 2021 survey, we heard back that on average, advisors were saving 12 hours per week by outsourcing investment management and contributing those hours back towards client-facing activities. So if you think about that 12 hours a week, quick math is that's two and a half hours a day which imagine recalibrating your calendar to focus on driving deeper relationships with your clients and sales orientation versus portfolio rebalancing, allocating and block trading. All right. So walk us through the decision-making process. Like what considerations are advisors taking into account when they're deciding whether outsourcing and investment management works for them? Yeah. So I think it really comes down to expertise is always going to be the number one reason. So you're only going to give up the keys to the kingdom from a money management or portfolio construction perspective if you trust that the person or entity you're outsourcing to is better at it than you or can do it as effectively, if not better than you. Right. So what we're seeing across the board is to gain access to either maybe a part of the market, maybe a non-traditional asset class or a non-standard asset class that you don't cover well today or you don't have the time to cover. So we get asked you know, from an institutional asset management perspective to cover parts of portfolio construction for advisors that don't have the knowledge in that space in the market or where they believe that it's not a part of the market where they can deliver exceptional value or alpha. So I would just say in general, the number one reason is reliable expertise. So whether that's they can't deliver value above and beyond what we could, or it's a non-traditional asset class, for example, where they just don't feel comfortable. And we wake up all day, every day doing that. So outsourcing to someone like us or a third party in general makes sense. That's the number one reason. The number two reason is time. So that the number one commodity we all share is our discretionary time. So what we do with that time is what drives our return on investment. So if you're looking to get a return on investment of your time, at times you often need to look at outsourcing what is not your cornerstone or what you do best. So allowing advisors to focus on deepening their client relationships is a huge reason why a lot of advisors will consider outsourcing to a third party. That 12 hours that we talked about in the question before in the conversation earlier is really meaningful as advisors are looking to scale their book and they're looking to bring in more revenue across their overall practice. And are there other ways that advisors are outsourcing different tasks so they can focus on that and spend more time on relationships? Absolutely. And so I I think that investment management is one of the more common ways you see 
REAs outsource, but there are lots of ways where you see advisors outsourcing, most namely service and ops, financial planning, marketing communications, tech stacks, platform IT. And these are all great ways to drive scale to your book of business. And we've done a lot of studies that compares advisors who do everything in their entire practice on their own versus advisors who outsource either two or three key functions, let's call it financials, tech stack, and marketing. We see a direct correlation to a higher wallet share, higher AUM, and increased number of clients they can serve. And it's just a simple math game of unlocking more discretionary time for these advisors so they can do more of what bring more revenue and opportunity to their book. So if advisors are considering this, and as you said, you know, this is a matter of whether they have the time or expertise that this makes sense for them, but how does it work exactly? Because I mean, it sounds great, you know, giving your clients that peace of mind, working in their relationships, making sure their life goals and ambitions are being realized, but how do they really get their clients to that next step beyond financial plans? I mean, we're talking about advisors becoming sort of life coaches or what does that mean exactly? So this is where we spend a lot of our time. So I think a lot of advisors appreciate and identify with finding a third-party manager to outsource to, and they understand the value proposition. And then they'll even get on board with understanding which portfolio they want to move to. And the first question they ask is, well, how do I do it? And so implementing the choice to outsource is one key question that we talk about and spend a lot of time answering. So, and I don't know if this is exactly your question, Robin, so forgive me, but we spend time talking about how to implement and execute that idea of outsourcing. And one of the things we do is we help advisors around this concept of segmentation. And so there's a lot of different values and drivers around segmentation. And it's an art, not a science, in my opinion. And Fidelity talks to a lot of advisors. and, And what we'll do in a workshop is we'll say, write down six or seven different levers or ways that you identify value for your clients. Is it revenue? Is it AUM? Is it the ability to refer? Is it likability? There's lots of different ways that you can identify value to your clients. And then we say, don't just choose one, maybe choose two or three and add a blended weight of maybe revenue, AUM, and referability, and then stack rank all of your clients using those levers. So then you have a pure objective way that you're stack ranking, let's say in this example, 100 clients. So you have a numeric score. And then from there, you can say, now, how do I personalize my solution scale services across these 100 clients, knowing their stack rank? So then we come up with different services and tiers per the segment. So maybe you have your ultra high net worth segment or that's gonna drive the highest revenue or AUM. And for those clients, maybe you are designing your own portfolios and you're spending time driving alpha around portfolio construction for those clients. And maybe the next tier of clients is somebody where you're spending more time doing financial planning, coaching, getting into personal. And maybe the bottom tier is somewhere where you're looking to drive scale automation and digitize those experiences. So nonetheless, the moral of the story is segmentation is a really important tool to help drive personalization across your book so you can hit scale and be the best version of you to all of your clients. So this actually brings in another question that Rob and I want to ask. And obviously in our profession, We believe we have an obligation to perform at a very high level. So what are your wellness practices, both, you know, physical or mental or both to ensure that you're performing well? Me personally, Susie Daly? Yes, Susie Daly. Oh, wow. Okay. So for me, it is personal, right? So I have three little kids. And so I will start my day with, to me, what matters most, which is them. And so we do this traditional breakfast. We do the whole, you know, pass around and talk about your day, what you're excited about and what you're looking forward to. So in terms of just as we talk to advisors about making sure you're vulnerable, empathetic, and you're connecting, 
I mean, I drive those practices home at my breakfast table every morning with my kids and, and my husband to make sure that we're all connecting and we're starting off the day on a personal level and have really open relationships. So that's, to me, part of my routine. But to your point about performance, so I, I get that emotional fill from that part of my day. But then, as you can imagine, kids get home from school, they've got activities, and we drive them around from one activity to the next. Usually, I'll try to sneak in, you know, my meditation is a run around, you know, a couple miles here and there with a podcast in my ear. And I think about, you know, the industry, or I think about things outside of my industry that may impact my thinking on the industry. So my kids will often laugh because they'll be at soccer and they'll watch mom doing laps with the podcast in her ear and I'll sit down and stretch and they'll say, you know, mom, what podcast was it today? So that's a little bit about my personal kind of meditation process, both starting with the personal side on the kids and connecting emotionally and ending with some of that high energy and, and more pontificating side. I love it. All right. Another favorite question is kind of get back to financial advice is what do you think makes a good financial advisor? What are some of the social or emotional skills that serve advisors best? That's a great question because that has changed over time. And that was part of our survey as well. So what came back from the survey data was that the highest scoring skills for advisors that they deemed created most success in their relationships was high EQ. So we define that at Fidelity at high emotional quotient. And so that goes back to the same characteristics and traits we've been talking about with empathy, listening, subjectivity. It's really getting to know your clients and driving that open dialogue and interest in them and asking the question beyond the question, getting personal, understanding who their children are, what drives their children's needs. And so I think for me, what I've seen in the data is that having a high EQ, listening skills and empathy are what are driving successful relationships. Now, what I'd say though, Rusty, it may not mean that if you have EQ, then you're a successful advisor. It may mean that you do need to go back and have your analytical IQ skill sets to go and crunch the numbers, provide the alpha, do the service. Those are highly referred skills. Having a high IQ, as we all knew, is, in, is incredibly important, but you need to be able to connect using those EQ. So I think the way that you're connecting with your clients is really resonating with your ability to listen and be empathetic and be subjective in your conversations. All right. So you just referred to podcast. Mm-hmm. Going to move on to that. What do you recommend that advisors and investors should be listening to or reading? I love this question. And so you're going to call me out to make sure that I am listening to podcasts on my run. So I mentioned <laughs> earlier on that my 18 years at Fidelity are a blend of managed accounts and technology. And so I still can't shake the importance of just a good tech stack conversation and what it means to design thoughtful workflows, the importance of digital experience, user experience, overall optimization and helping advisors get from point A to point B the most efficiently and effectively. So in terms of driving those conversations, I love to hear a good debate from Michael Kitsis. I love to see his maps, who he brings in for conversations. You know, He has a Carlin Kitsis show as well, which is interesting. And then another peer of his is Craig Iskowitz, who really does a great job in, in showing you the full tech stack and every single CRM out there and every single portfolio rebalancing platform out there and what they do different than the others. And then lastly, William Trout. So those three are the individuals or scholars I go to as industry experts around wealth tech. And then I would say, too, in terms of Fidelity, well, Fidelity has a long roster of podcasts as well that I, you know, a shameless plug for ourselves. We have three great resources that I'd love everybody to start listening into if you're not already. FinPoint, we're currently on season number three, where it's a tremendous podcast. And I referenced this earlier, but we have this concept of the advice value stack, where we take clients through managing the money as the bottom tier, then financial planning and goals and self-fulfillment and actualization. So there's really a season almost dedicated to each tier of the stack and how 
how to level up from one tier to the next. So we're currently on season three, but it's phenomenal. And it brings you through all the concepts of managing the money, goal planning, and the importance of financial planning in the advisor's day-to-day book. So that's FinPoint. Next would be thinking outside the portfolio. So Jordan Burgess brings in fidelity experts to talk through the trends in portfolio construction. So whether that's near and dear to my world, like model portfolios and separately managed accounts, but also just fixed income specialists, asset class specialists, international, for example. And you know what are we seeing? And certainly right now we're talking a lot about the fixed income asset class and interest rates. He has a really thoughtful podcast around portfolio construction. And then lastly, Rusty, I think you know Derek Hofshire, and he does yeah. another uh, really thoughtful podcast where he talks about market insights. So the podcast is called Market Insights, and he dips into where we are in the business cycle and his thoughts around the overall macro economy. Oh, and I didn't answer your question no, around no. the book. I'm sorry, Rusty. So the book is a little bit of a deviation from what I was talking about, but one of my all-time favorites, and it's not directly related to financial services, but is Boys on the Boat. And the reason I like Boys on the Boat, it's a great leadership book. It's non-fictional and talks a lot about essentially where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And so another thing we talk about a lot is that advisor teams are often very successful. You look at REAs and what differentiates one from another. It'll always come down to teamwork. So I do think it's important read to understand how these gentlemen were really successful as a team. That's great. So that was boys on the boat. Kind of reminds me of the expression, uh, burn the boats. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of, you know, as you know, I'm a Fidelity alum and I'm embarrassed to say how do I not know those two podcasts? I know Dirks because, of course, he is an Omaha native. So we, again, know all people from Nebraska. But uh, <laughs> but I should be listening to those other two podcasts. Those are great tips. Definitely. All right. Well, I want to see if I can take the opportunity here because just got to find out about the market outlook. So where does Fidelity currently assess the global business cycle? They do a ton of work on the business cycle. And with that in mind, how should investors be investing? It's a great question. And so I'm going to parrot my friend Dirk Hofshire because I did listen to his Market Insights podcast just recently. And what I heard him talking about was, you know, as we sit here mid-year of 2021, we look back over the last six or so months, the U.S. markets have done extremely well. It's been a broad-based rally, really. You know, you look back, I think you mentioned this too, Rusty, it's been a tremendous 10, 15 years for anybody who's had a well-diversified portfolio. They've done extremely well. As we think about the business cycle at Fidelity, again, back to frameworks, we think about it in four stages. So we have the early cycle, and that's where you see activity rebounding, maybe credit beginning to grow, profits growing rapidly, inventories are kind of low. And then there's the mid-cycle. Mid-cycle, you see growth peaking, credit growth strong, profit growth peaks, and then an equilibrium as it relates to inventories and overall sales. Late cycle is more growth is beginning to moderate, earnings are under pressure, inventories grow as sales begin to fall, and then lastly, recession. So falling activity, profits are declining, inventories and sales are falling. So it's early, mid, late, and recession. That's how we identify with the business cycle. So Fidelity right now, the current state of the economy is morphing towards a more mid-cycle. We're past the peak and we're entering into the more reopening stage. And a few things that I've certainly heard Dirk talk about recently is just this consideration to the labor markets. Labor markets and the shortage in the labor markets seem to be a bit of a concern. So some of the benefits to staying out of the labor markets that the government's put in place will begin to expire over the next couple months. So I think we may begin to see some mobilization off the sidelines and hopefully resurgence back into the labor markets, some more contribution there. Another thing we're looking forward to is corporate earnings growth. So hoping that companies continue to beat expectations and greater profitability, and we can grow into that high valuation. So a focus on high quality names here. 
But one thing I think we all should be prepared for is just the potential around volatility. We've had some fits and starts around the opening of the economy and, and the resurgence of what that looks like. And I think if you ask anybody, nobody knows what a full opening looks like. So I think there's just general volatility that we all need to be prepared for, which leads me to my closing statement, which is I think that just reminds us all to have a well-diversified portfolio to anticipate and absorb some of this volatility. Always good advice. Well, Susie, it's been really great having you on the show today. Really interesting stuff. How can listeners stay connected to you, learn more about the work that you're doing at Fidelity? Excellent. You can always find me on LinkedIn and you have my contact information here that I'm more than happy to share. But I'm really excited for the opportunity to share and speak more about the Fidelity Portfolio Solutions and you know how we really believe that we can help advisors in continuing to outsource their capabilities and allow them to show up as the best version of themselves in those client relationships. Thank you both for having me. Susie, I'd also like to say thanks for coming on the show. One last question for me is, how can advisors find some of these studies you're referring to? Well, obviously, we want to put stuff in the show notes, but how can they find the studies on your website and how can they just like stay on top of future work? Oh, great question. So we'd love to allow everybody to come and enjoy the work in our continuous research and survey and findings and, and thought leadership on institutional.fidelity.com. And we'll make sure you get a, a version of all the surveys to put on your show notes as well, Rusty. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, Susie. Yeah, great to have you. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with your final words. Stay balanced and stay the course. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.